0: But right now we're still in Galatians, no other Gospels are series. we've been in it for a little while. Uh, Last Sunday we looked at the three remaining characteristics of false teachers right in the middle of chapter 5. Do you remember what they they were? Uh, False teachers will be judged, verse 10, uh, they persecute true teachers, verse 11, typically it's religious folks and false teachers that do the most persecuting. And uh, lastly, they will be cut off. Emasculated is the word that Paul used, and we talked about that a little bit. That was in verse 12. The false teachers, the Judaizers, they had a particular fear, and that fear is they feared that a gospel that is based on grace would. Lead Christians to live loose, you know, loose lives. And, and just, to, just to treat grace like a license for sin, and they would just live lawless, loose lives. And uh, the doctrinal or theological term for that would be antinomianism. You've heard that from this pulpit several times. And uh, so they had a fear that Paul's gospel would lead to that. And uh, I think sometimes the fear of that is is a bit legitimate. You just really don't understand what grace does when you think that way. But think about that. If it's based entirely on grace, it's all God's work in grace, then, you know, a person could think, well, I guess then I can just do whatever I want. And that's kind of the thinking behind antinomianism. And so um, that's how they felt about it. And so they were very concerned. And uh, even long after this moment during the fourth and fifth centuries um, you had a a British theologian by the name of Pelagius who had the same fears. And what he began to do was he began to advocate or preach against grace which is a big no-no. You preach a right understanding of grace, you don't throw it out. But he preached against it and he also uh, really exalted free will and asceticism. Asceticism meaning, you know, Christianity is a bunch of don'ts, and so asceticism, don't do this, don't do that, that's what he preached. And, um, but same fear as the Judaizers. And this guy was eventually challenged by Augustine, or Augustine, however you choose to pronounce his name. And he was, uh, Pelagius was labeled as a heretic at the Council of Ephesus in 431, because he essentially throughout grace completely and exalted man's free choice and exalted um, reduction theology or asceticism. The word antinomian, it comes from two Greek words, anti, meaning against, and nomos, meaning law. Uh, so antinomianism means against the law. Uh, Theologically, antinomianism is the belief that there are no moral laws that God expects Christians to obey. And since Christians are under grace, they can pretty much live however they want, without any regard for morality, without any concern or much concern for sin. And uh, Paul's rejection of works of the law for justification, that's what led the Judaizers to accuse him of preaching a kind of early antinomianism. Remember, Paul has been saying, look, you're not justified by the law, you're not justified by the law. The Judaizers were saying, were interpreting that as the law doesn't apply to you at all, and that's not what Paul was teaching. But that's the way that they interpreted Paul's version of the gospel and justification by faith alone. So the problem wasn't in the apostles' preaching, it was in the Judaizers' hearts and hearing and they were, quite frankly, as we've learned through this letter, they were totally obsessed with works of the law as, a, as a, a part of their religion, as a part of their justification, with a super high emphasis on what? Circumcision, which is a work of the law. And people who are obsessed with works of the law, or, or maybe we would just generalize it by calling it religion and doing a lot of things to please God, people who are obsessed with those types of things, they, generally speaking, despise words like grace, despise words like faith, and they certainly despise the word freedom, especially Christian freedom or Christian liberty or gospel freedom, which is a term that we'll use today. Why do they do that? Because they're legalistic and they're focused on trying to earn their salvation. And and grace contradicts the earning of salvation, faith contradicts the earning of salvation. And if grace and faith together produce freedom, then they hate freedom as well. Now, so this is a a charge against Paul here. You're an antinomian false preacher. That's the charge against him. And in the next section, Paul corrects the Judaizers by showing how the gospel of grace he preaches absolutely produces gospel freedom, but it's not the kind of lawless antinomian freedom these guys were thinking of or charging him with. It produces gospel freedom, which empowers Christians to deny their flesh, empowers them to obey the law, or to fulfill the law, perhaps, by loving and serving one another. Please take your Bibles and turn over to Galatians 5. Our focus will be on just a couple of verses, verses 13 through 15 like to pray for God's help before we get to work. Father, we ask for your help now as we engage our, engage your word and engage our minds and our ears and our hearts. And so, Lord, we just pray that, Father, that you would open our ears and hearts and minds to your word and help us to understand what the true gospel actually does and how it brings true freedom but not a license to sin. And so help us to understand this big, big, big truth today. Help us to understand antinomianism better and uh, help us to not only understand and to comprehend and to expand our knowledge, but to help us live out this gospel freedom the way that it's intended to be lived out. And so we commit this time to you and. We pray that you are glorified through this sermon and that we are edified. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We can pick up where we left off, verse 13a. The very next thing Paul says is, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Paul begins by reminding the Galatian brothers of their calling Right? That's what he's doing. You were called to something. I'm reminding you of what you were called to. They had been called by Christ to freedom or to gospel freedom. And he points to this reality and this calling in chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1, 8, and then 13 right here. So this calling that he's talking about to gospel freedom, it's, it's throughout the letter, He's constantly reminding them of what they've been called to. He even illustrated this truth back in chapter 4 beginning at verse 22 through the example of Hagar the slave and Sarah the free woman. We see the crescendo, the theological crescendo at the end of chapter 4 in verse 31 where he plainly says, brothers, we are not children of the slave but of the free woman. There's an illustration of their gospel freedom. Every true believer, every true Christian has received the exact, the precise, same calling. Every one of us who is a Christian, who names the name of Jesus Christ, has the same calling, has this gospel freedom. And this gospel freedom is based on the actual gospel itself, on the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ lived a perfect life and earned the righteousness we need to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because of our faith in His person and finished work, we are clothed in His righteousness. We don't have to try to earn righteousness through works of the law or some other means. We are now free to live in His righteousness. That is gospel freedom. Living in His righteousness, the provision of His righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ, that is true freedom to live in that righteousness. It is not freedom to try to make your own. Christ died on a cross to pay for our sins, to satisfy the law's demands, to extinguish the holy wrath of God and to establish peace and reconciliation and peace with God. Because of our faith in His person and finished work, we are not required to atone for our own sins. We are not required to fulfill the law. We are not required to quell the wrath of God. And we are not required to somehow make peace with God. We are now free to live in the atonement of Christ, which has secured for us all these things. That is gospel freedom. It is not freedom to try to atone for yourself through good works. That is a bondage. That is a slavery. That's what Paul's been talking about. That's the whole point of this letter. Christ was buried to settle our accounts. Because of our faith in His person and finished work, we don't have to try to figure out how to settle our massive sin debt to God and somehow close our account with Him. We are now free to live in the burial of Jesus Christ. This too is gospel freedom. Christ was resurrected on the third day for our justification. Because of our faith in his person and finished work, we are justified, we are accepted, we are adopted by God, and there is nothing that we can do to increase or decrease this reality. They are immutably fixed for all eternity. We are now free to live as sons and daughters, uh, as as sons and daughters of God through Jesus' resurrection and justification. That is gospel freedom. Being in Christ and recognizing all that He's accomplished for us and living within that, in, in His in His solid work, finished work on our behalf, that's that's what's freeing. Stepping outside of that and trying to earn and trying to do our own thing, is that's bondage. Gospel freedom is based upon the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. It's based upon the gospel. The gospel brings freedom. There's no freedom outside of the gospel. There's no freedom outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ. People may feel and think that they are free, but they are not if they are outside of Jesus. He's the only one who frees. And this gospel freedom that is based on his person and finished work upon the gospel itself, it comes to us by grace through faith, not through our own merit, not through our own effort. It is a free gift that comes through the gifts of divine sovereign grace and the gift of faith. When Christ bids a a sinner to come to him for salvation, he does not say, if you want to come to me, you must live a perfect life and earn your righteousness. He does not say, if you want to come to me, you must pay for your sins, you must satisfy the law's demands through obedience, you must extinguish the wrath of God, and guess what? You must establish your own reconciliation and peace with my Father. You better do that. He does not say, if you want to come to me, you better get an accounting degree, learn to crunch the numbers, and put yourself in a dark, dank tomb until you figure out how to settle your massive debt to my Father. He does not say that. He does not say, if you want to come to me, you must raise yourself to new life and produce justification so that God will, my Father will justify, accept, and adopt you. Christ never, ever ever bids a sinner to come, hum, to come to him, to come unto him and work for it. Never. You'll never see that in Scripture. If you want to come to me, you better earn your way to me. Or once you come to me, you better maintain something and do something. He never, he never says, if you want to come to me, there's a part that you have to contribute to that. He never, he never does that. He never says that. Do you know what he says? Do you know what he commands? He commands the sinner to cease his or her striving and to find rest for their souls in him. Psalm 46.10, Matthew 11.28. Think about that famous line, come unto me, you weary sinners, right? Right? You can find rest for your souls in me. My burden is light. He doesn't say, come unto me, but before you come unto me, go down to the car wash and clean away your sin. Have Brian do a detailed job, help you somehow clean yourself up. Never says anything like that in Scripture. Cease your striving. Quit trying to earn your way. And just come unto me and take my burden because it's light. That's His invitation. Christ never preached a works-based gospel that keeps sinners in bondage. Never. You won't find that in Scripture. He preached the gospel of grace. He is the gospel of grace. But He preached the gospel of grace which liberates the captives. And flings open the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 61, verse 1, Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He preached gospel freedom, and he based it upon his perfect, finished work. And this is why he could say, and could mean it, and could promise it: if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Amen. John 8:36. Now, we need to be careful not to abuse this blood bought gospel freedom. Antinomianism is always lurking in the shadows of our flesh. The idea that it's okay to sin because of grace that's antinomianism. Gospel freedom is not a license to sin, nor does it negate biblical morality never encourages us to to keep on sinning so that grace may abound. In fact, Paul addresses that and says, Is this the way that it's supposed to be? May it never be so! Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. The gospel freedom that is a gift to us actually promotes morality. It promotes holy living. Galatians 5, 6 through 26. The next section... And guess what gospel freedom does? It also promises no condemnation when we fall short. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel Paul preached promoted gospel freedom, not antinomianism. It It also promoted holiness and righteous living, loving one another. It didn't Never, ever, at any juncture or point in Scripture do we see it promoting lawlessness or licentiousness or loose living. It condemns antinomianism. And Paul hammers this truth in the next line. Look at verse 13b with me. See what he says here? Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Wow. Paul is warning the Galatians not to use their gospel freedom for sinful purposes as an opportunity for the flesh. And he is exhorting them to use it for what its, or one of, at least one of its intended purposes, through love, serve one another. Now, the Apostle Peter said something very similar in 1 Peter 2.16. He exhorts the Christians he was writing to to live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Peter's almost saying the exact same thing. According to Paul and Peter, both of these guys apostles, gospel freedom is given to us so that we can serve, not our flesh, but one another and God. Gospel freedom enables us to do this without guilt, without shame, without fear, Why? Because gospel freedom ensures that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can actually serve others without any compulsion or guilt or fear. You can just do it freely in the freedom that has been provided. You can do it with with right motives, not because you're trying to get something from them. That's you serving them for your flesh, and that's a misuse of your gospel freedom. You can do it freely in the love of God. We can lovingly serve others and God. And really, that's the way that you serve God, by the way, is by serving others. But we can lovingly serve others and God primarily because God first loved us. 1 John 4.19, He demonstrated His great love for us by setting us free from the penalty of sin, by setting us free from the demands of the law and by setting us free from the devil and death and judgment and hell through the person and finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ? I mean, every time you look upon a cross, you are seeing, to me, the pinnacle of God's love. When you look at this and realize what He did there for you, that is the highest expression of God's love, in my opinion. The second highest expression would be regeneration, because now He's applying that to the dead sinner. What more can God do to prove that He truly loves us? What more? It's kind of weird how our flesh works, that no matter how long we gaze upon the cross, we still wonder if He loves us. And I think the reason why we wonder about His love for us is because we struggle with sin and we think that our sin somehow distorts or destroys the relationship we have with Him. This is what happens. What more can He do to prove that He truly loves us? The cross shouts this. Our regeneration shouts this. Our repentance shouts this because that was a gift given to you. Our faith shouts shouts that he loves us because faith is a gift that he gave us. Our adoption into his family shouts, I love you. Our sanctification, being made more and more like Jesus every day, that shouts that he loves us. Our fellowship together as, as, as Christians, when we, when we come together based on the word of God and on the truths of God and the promises of God and we love one another, that is God shouting to us, I love you. His, his word shouts his love for us. This, this pulpit shouts his love for us all the time. These are gifts of grace that have come to us from our loving Heavenly Father. The very breath in your Lungs is an expression of his love. He loves us more than, than we could literally ever imagine. And his love is liberating, it establishes gospel freedom, which enables us to love and serve God and serve others very freely without any sort of compulsion or fear or any of that, without false motive. Serving God and others through love is a proper use of gospel freedom. That's what Paul's teaching us here. Serving our sinful flesh is an improper use of gospel freedom. Under the cloak of Christian liberty, which is just another term for gospel freedom, there are some professed Christians who think it's okay to get drunk, who are perfectly fine with getting high, who think it's absolutely okay to sleep with their girlfriends or boyfriends, think it's okay to to look at porn, they think it's okay to to live in almost unrestrained self-indulgence. They say, it's okay, it's okay for me to live this way because I'm saved and covered by grace. That, my friends, is antinomianism. MacArthur wrote, a person such as this gives strong evidence that he is not a Christian at all. Although a true believer may fall into serious sin, his renewed conscience in Christ's own dwelling or indwelling spirit will not allow him to enjoy that sin for long. And he surely will not continually try to justify sin as a legitimate expression of Christian freedom. I agree with that statement. True believers will not be able to violate their consciences, as long as those consciences are scripturally bound, and they usually are with true believers, true believers will not be able to violate their scripturally bound consciences. They will not be able to grieve the Holy Spirit for long. They will eventually cave and repent, just as David did before Nathan, 2 Samuel 12, 13. At some point, they're going to come to a full realization of what they've been doing, and they're going to repent, and sometimes It comes through the help of a brother or sister who lays out the sin that they're living that sometimes they don't even realize. But most of the time, we do know what we're doing, and we're making up excuses for it as we go. False believers, however, they will claim grace. They will justify their sinful behavior. They will even spurn the gospel when you share it with them. They'll say, well, I already know that, and I already believe that. I don't need to go back to that. And they will also refuse to confess and repent. That's what they do. You know what else they do? They love to blame others for their sin. That's probably the number one thing they do. You ever challenge somebody in love and they immediately turn back on you and try to lay out how you didn't live up to par at some point? They just can't hear their own sin and they got to immediately deflect and go back to you. And my typical response is, Congratulations! Tell him what he's won, Johnny. You have a sinner who is who is challenging you on your sin right now. I'm not saying that I'm without sin by calling you out on your sin, but we're not talking about me right now, are we? That's what I typically say. And then in typical fashion the counseling meeting ends and they find another church. But yeah, you know, just it happens. You know? I'm not always the best counselor. I'm very much a get your crap together kind of counselor at times. You know, it's how I am. If you don't like it, don't come to me. Go to to Bruce. Well, brother, I think that's a bad route. That's his approach. Go to Cameron. He's a hybrid. Part butt kicker, part sympathetic, empathetic, compassionate, whatever. You remember Mike Boyd when he was an elder? That was like going to Mr. Rogers. Who was? Paul Rogers. Eh, he was usually on my case, so uh. But they do this. They, they blame others, they blame everyone else. They, they don't own their stuff. You know we sit there and we're, we marvel at this kind of behavior. and we're dealing with unbelievers here. We're not dealing with people who have been converted if they do everything in their power to deny their own sin that is blatantly obvious to people. This happens. This happens. True believers are not going to keep doing this. They will at some point realize what's going on and, and do the right thing. Teaching gospel freedom as an opportunity for the flesh is the lure of many popular false teachers. They claim that a believer is free to express him or herself in virtually any way they want to. Um, Think of Charles Manson, David Koresh, Jim Jones, Bhagwan Rajanish, these kinds of cult leaders who claim to be Christians and who, who professed that, you know, true Christianity leads to sex. That's what they did. It's what they said. They are a classic example of these who, you know, use this as an excuse. I think we could probably add a few modern-day charismatics to the list. They tend to preach holiness with a call to asceticism, don't do this or that, but they still focus on the flesh with all that talk about health and wealth, don't they? Mm-hmm. They preach a false gospel that is aimed at the two things that every fallen sinner wants more than anything else, and that's health and wealth. And they know exactly what they're doing. To advocate licentiousness in the name of Christian liberty, and licentiousness is another word for debauchery, to advocate for that in the name of Christian liberty or gospel freedom is literally to deny the Lord Jesus Christ who gives freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. You understand the difference? You think that Jesus came to die for your sins so that you could just sin and live it up? No. He came to die for your sins to remove them and the penalty and to call you to live in holiness and to empower you to do that through His Holy Spirit. The gospel does not condone sinful living at all, and it never, ever promotes antinomianism. It is true. That we are saved by grace, but the grace that saves also empowers holy living so that we can be like Christ. MacArthur again, he said, grace does not mean we have permission to do as we please. It means we have the power to do what pleases God. Remember that one. Remember that one. Gospel freedom is to be used for loving service Right For serving God and serving others through love, it is not given uh, for opportunities of the flesh. That is a misuse of our gospel freedom. Let's move to verse 14. Paul says next, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we use our gospel freedom for its intended purpose, which is loving service, We actually fulfill the law of God. It is fulfilled every time we love our neighbors, those who are nearby, every time we love our fellow Christians, our brothers and sisters in our church. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, they show us how to love God and others. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 17. There's a nice list of the commandments there. And if you know anything about the Decalogue, it has two tables. The first table, commandments one through four, they describe how to love God, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath day a holy day. That's the first table that illustrates or lays out or describes how we are to love God. God. And then the second table, commandments 5 through 10, describe how we love others, right? You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 26, verse 19, this is a a kind of divine commentary and practical guide to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments. It describes the implications of each commandment in nauseating detail. The Decalogue was given uh, to the Israelites to set them apart from the surrounding pagan nations and and really to teach them how to love God and how to love others rightly. You think about that, you can't simply tell people to love God and others and expect them to pull it off, right? Right? Sin has twisted our understanding of love. The law was put in place because of this. It was given not just for covenantal reasons, but because fallen humanity's understanding of love is totally corrupt. You think about the garden before the fall. There was no set of laws given to Adam and Eve in the garden because they had no trouble loving God and loving each other. They had no problem with that. They had one law, do not eat from that tree or you will surely die die. Genesis 2.17. But the devil deceived them, the serpent. And after they sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit, their understanding of love became distorted. And what is the first thing they tried to do? Hide from God. Well, I'm not sure if He loves us anymore because of what we've done. Their view of love was destroyed. Genesis 3.8. And all of humanity has been plagued by a distorted view of love ever since that moment. Ever since that moment. And because of this, people have to be shown how to love God and how to love others. And that is what the law does. But after the law was given, people continued to fail fail to love God and love others You can give fallen humanity all the laws in the world that illustrate how to love God and others, and they're still going to completely blow it. The law didn't fix our love problem. It amplified it, Romans 5.20. And so God gave His people the sacrificial system so that atonements could be made for their sins and failure to love Him and love others rightly. Now, under the New Covenant... God is, that's all Old Covenant, under the New Covenant, God has poured His love into the hearts of His people through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. Christians have been given gospel freedom in Christ. So you have the love of God in your heart through the Holy Spirit, and you have been given this gospel freedom. And this combination of divine love in our hearts and gospel freedom enables us to love God and love others in a holy and pure way. Without distortion, without perversion, without guilt, without fear, without selfish motives. And when we do this, when we exercise or practice the love of God in our hearts and this gospel freedom for its intended purpose, when we do this and by loving our neighbors, what happens? What does Paul say? The law is fulfilled. You end up obeying the commandments of God without even being cognizant of them. Because you're loving, which is the intent that God has. The law is fulfilled when we love God the way God made us, and when, when we love others and God the way God made us to do that, and when we essentially love like Jesus. And yet our enemies, the world, the devil, and our flesh, Ephesians 2, 2-3, to they make loving God and others difficult at times, don't they? And this is why Paul exhorts us to use our gospel freedom for loving service rather than for opportunities of the flesh, because these adversaries, the flesh and the world and the devil, they they want us to misuse our freedom. They want us to use our freedom for ourselves so that we can indulge and claim grace, so that we can become antinomian. This is why we require ongoing instruction just as the ancient Israelites did because it's easy for us to slide back into ungodly patterns. Possessing the love of God in our hearts and gospel freedom does not ensure that we will actually love like Jesus. It enables that. It motivates that. It empowers that, but it doesn't guarantee it. We have the ability to... But things tend to get in the way, and that's why Paul's letters are full of instruction. Even though we have this power and this transforming power in our, in our lives and, and we are new creations, there's still a flesh, there's still adversaries, there's still the old man, as Paul calls it, the flesh suit, as Rick Countryman used to call it all the time. I don't know how many times I heard that phrase. I was there for a long time, so I heard it every weekend for about 10 years but I think we would all admit that this stuff just gets in the way of us loving rightly. But it's possible, and it's commanded. If it's commanded, that means it can be done here. Paul gives an example of this in the last line, right? He talks about things getting in the way. Verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's a very interesting statement. It would appear that some of the Galatian brothers were misusing their gospel freedom. Instead of serving one another through love, they were biting, devouring, and consuming one another. That's what Paul says. The words bite, devour, and consume speak of wild animals engaged in the fury of a deadly struggle. What comes to mind would be like two male lions fighting over a pride of lionesses. Have you ever seen that? Two male lions, full-grown, going at it over a pride of lionesses. One of them supposedly owns the lionesses, and there's another one who's challenging that ownership. And then they fight often to the death or until one retreats and leaves. And then if, if the new lion prevails, then he goes through and kills all the cubs to start his own line. That's, what is, that's the visual that Paul is trying to use here. But I do not believe Paul was referring to literal violence among the Galatians. I don't think they were beating each other up or actually biting or devouring. This analogy. It's an analogy that he's using or even kind of a metaphor. They weren't physically beating each other up like lions going at it. I believe he was referring to them creating stumbling blocks that caused weaker brothers and sisters to violate their consciences. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about you misusing your freedom to cause harm to weaker brothers and sisters. And in a way, that is biting and devouring. If you're inflicting harm, you're biting and devouring. And he wrote about this in, in much detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, which is the whole chapter. I'd like to read it. You want to turn there, go ahead. 1 Corinthians 8, the whole chapter, which is verses 1 through 13. Listen to what he says. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be uh, so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from uh, from whom are all things, for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And he says this, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating, In an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you are are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble." Paul is basically teaching the Corinthians here, and in in our text. He's basically saying that Christians, and all Christians, mind you, possess knowledge, but some Christians possess more knowledge than others, right? We all all have been saved in the same way. We have the same Lord, the same Holy Spirit. All of that is identical. We're, We're all in the church of God. That's all the same. But the trajectory of our faith is, you know, we all have faith, but some of us have grown a little bit more in the faith than others. And that's what he's beginning to illustrate here, firstly, in the the beginning of the section. All Christians have knowledge, but some have more knowledge than others. And those who possess more understand that they are free to eat meat sacrificed to idols because they know there are no other gods or lords. This is an understanding that they have, right? These who possess a little bit more knowledge, the Christians who's more mature, he or she understands that meat sacrificed to idols is just meat because there are no other gods, right? You understand? I can eat that because I don't believe that it was actually sacrificed to any literal divine being. There are no other divine beings. There's only one God. So the Christian who possesses this level of knowledge and understanding, or I would even say this broader expression of gospel freedom, he or she can say, I can eat that all day and I don't stumble at all and I don't think twice about it because it's just meat. They can use their gospel freedom to partake and do it for the glory of the true God and the true Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying. However, Christians who possess less knowledge may not understand their gospel freedom concerning these types of issues. They might see meat sacrificed to idols as evil and want to avoid it. Well, that was offered to Baal. I don't want to eat that because they think that there's some real weight to that situation. And by doing that in their immaturity, they are in a way acknowledging the existence of a literal God named Baal. There is no God named Baal, or Baal, if you want to call him that. But they are a little bit less mature, and something like that will cause them to hesitate and maybe to even stumble if they see another Christian participating in it. And and if they see a a Christian participating in in the meat sacrificed to an idol and their conscience isn't quite there, Either two things will happen. They will either join in and violate their underdeveloped, immature conscience, or they will judge their brothers and sisters for their seemingly sinful behavior. This is what happens. Paul is telling the Corinthians not to use their gospel freedom to cause weaker, underdeveloped brothers and sisters to stumble. That's what he's saying. You've got gospel freedom, but don't use it in a way that inflicts harm, bites, devours, or consumes other Christians who don't understand things the way you do. To do that, to say, I don't care because I have my freedom, to do that and to lead other, um, uh, other more mature or more immature believers into sin or into violating their consciences, that is unloving. That's one of the most unloving things you could do. It's one of the most selfish things you could do. You are misusing your gospel freedom. And I know what we think in those moments. Well, I don't care because I have the freedom, and that's their problem. That's typically the way we process and think about that. Then we go ahead and push through and do it and jack people up. And Paul is saying, when you do that, you are not using your gospel freedom rightly. You are using it for opportunities of the flesh. If we find ourselves in a situation where, where this can happen... We are to suspend our gospel freedom for a moment and abstain from whatever causes that you know, less mature brother or sister to stumble. We are to abstain, just suspend the freedom. I'm not gonna drink that beer because I know it's gonna cause Fred to stumble. Right in our context, it's it's not gonna be meat sacrificed to idols, right? I mean, every time you eat bacon, is it was it sacrificed to the bacon God? Well, I believe the true God is the bacon God, so I eat bacon. I eat bacon to the glory of God, lots of it. Look at my stomach. It's not going to be a meat sacrifice to idols kind of scenario, right? There was a context for that. It could be alcoholic beverages. It could be cigars. It could be certain types of movies. It could be secular novels, right? It could be something else. It could be something else. That's the point of gospel freedom. You have the freedom to engage in really just about anything, but not everything's profitable or good. And some things will lead younger brothers and sisters in the Lord who have less developed consciences. It could cause them to stumble. And now we are misusing our gospel freedom. We are sinning against our brother, and we are sinning against the Lord. And there's a flip side to this too, because there are plenty of underdeveloped, less mature brothers and sisters out there who go around trying to bind everyone else to their consciences. And that is sinful as well. That can be sinful as well. But in this scenario here, it's a misuse of gospel freedom to just go ahead and do what you want when it causes harm to others. Instead of doing what you want, suspend the freedom and try to help others that brother or sister understand their gospel freedom. Instead of insisting on drinking that IPA in front of that brother that thinks that you're going to hell if you do that, help them understand how IPA does not send people to hell. Only dark beers do that. And we are so spoiled, we are such a spoiled people. We just want what we want and that's not the heart of Christ. Lay it aside for your brother. Put it aside for your sister. Your brother and sister is more important than your freedom. Set it aside. There's a blessing in that. But I know the flesh says, no, I want what I wanted. I don't care. They're stupid. Don't do that. Don't do that. If we err on the side of gospel freedom and disregard the cries of our weaker, underdeveloped brothers and sisters, this could very well lead to arguing where we bite, devour, and consume one another. That's what Paul is saying in Galatians. And what happens when that happens? Our peace and unity goes right out the window, and we totally damage our ability to witness to unbelievers, don't we? When you have disunity in the church over misuses of gospel freedom, it decimates that that small body of believers and it just creates a horrible witness. Gospel freedom is a gift and blessing from God. It comes down from the Father of lights, It is to be used for His glory, and this happens when we serve Him and serve one another through love. It happens when we we use our gospel freedom for our own enjoyment, provided that we don't overindulge or cause others to stumble. Gospel freedom must be handled with great care because the potential to misuse it and cause great harm is always there always there. May we use our gospel freedom for the glory of God, for our own enjoyment, and for the good of others. Amen.